Alan Kring Productions, in association with Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Autumn Semester 2022. Today, sensitivity analysis and free cash flow. Before we do that, a look at the numbers. And as you can see, this has been just a bare day. It started out down at the beginning and then it just kind of bounced around and then there was a drop just a little afternoon. Now this isn't anything spectacular. The Dow actually, right now, is managing a small percentage increase. So there's that, just out of curiosity. Um, you Dow. Well, I'll be darned. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me explain. You can bet on, uh, well, you, you cannot afford, and neither can I, to buy the Dow 30 portfolio. That would be a fortune per stock for 30 stocks. And then to get them in a nice balanced proportion relative to each other and all that, it would be a lot like work. You can't do that. Neither can you do it with the S&P 500. However, there are side bets that can be made. You can buy portfolios that mimic these uh, big portfolios. You can buy a portfolio that is, a, uh, I mean, an ETF that is the Dow. You can buy an ETF that is the uh, Standard Poor's 500. Like, for example, I had shown you earlier, there, here's um, uh, the Spider, SPY, is you buy a share of this, you have bought a share of the Standard Poor's 500. Now, if you feel like you are lucky, you could actually leverage so that you bought a magnified version of the Standard Poor's 500, for example. That would be, SPXL would be one of those. That is three times what happens to the standard. In other words, it's the Standard Poor's 500 portfolio, but it's magnified by three times. So whatever whither goes the S&P 500, your holding would move uh, a lot more. Now you notice that that's not actually a very expensive thing to do. You could buy it for about 70 bucks a share, somewhere around there. Uh, you probably buy about $69.75 and you would be riding uh, three times multiplier on the Standard Poor's 500. And one for the Dow is here, there are several, UDAO. UDAO is a magnifier. You could buy the, uh, a, an ETF that is the Dow, 30 industrials, or you could buy something like this that is a multiplier on the Dow 30. And that one is UDAO. And there's one for the NASDAQ, the Russell. I can't remember, what is the Russell? Um, I, lay, I stay away from the Russell as much as I can. No, I'm not seeing the Russell. Uh, nope, it's not letting me, I don't see that one. 
It was? No, that was the index itself. No, that's, you can buy a futures contract, and I can guarantee you that you are going to be playing with ungodly risk. Like, for example, if you could put $10,000 into a futures contract, and every tick is a $1,000 movement. So you could end up being up tens of thousands of dollars at the end of the day, but you could also end up having to pay tens of thousands of dollars at the end of the day. Literally, more money out of your pocket. Well, I already spent 10000 No, you owe 100000 or you owe 200000 at the end of the day. If you ever saw them, I, and I, I don't know if, I can't remember whether I asked or not, did you ever see the movie Trading Places? Eddie Murphy <coughs> and Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis. It was a funny comedy, lol kind of movie, but they were dead serious about how futures markets work. The, very, the last 20 minutes of the movie was the futures market, and these guys got a margin call, uh, which means that they had to pay the futures exchange uh, hundreds of millions of dollars all, all at once, right away, uh, instantly. And so, and yes, if you took a position like they did, thinking that it, the market was going to go up and it goes the other way, you could be in ungodly serious trouble. You don't want to do that. Well, maybe you do. I don't know if you're crazy. Take my uh, FIL 347 course, derivatives, and you will see this world and know why it's maybe not for you. But anyway, enough of that. Let me show you something interesting that happened. Remember on Monday I told you about GameStop? GME. Now let's take a toilet break today. Look what happened yesterday. I decided I'm going to try a one-day uh, swing on GameStop. After I told you about it, I thought, yeah, I should have the courage of my convictions here. That's what happened yesterday. Do you see how it just took a shot upward and then it took a toilet break? So I made a lot of money, right? No, I was stupid. I stayed till today and the damn stock took a, took a crap on me today. So if you have courage, don't overextend your welcome on these. They are very fickle. You can win one day, which I did yesterday, about $600, and today I have lost about $100. So uh, they can kiss my uh, asset portfolio. Anyway, back here. As you can see, the markets are just had a grouchy day, and it's going to end down a bear day. My thinking is that it will probably recover tomorrow. There's just some hints that it's going to turn the other way. But going over here, crude, there it is in that band that I've told you about. It's just going to bounce around in there for the most part for the next several months. What it does, if there, there was almost, we almost got into a point where we were going to have a full-blown war with Russia. Fortunately, now we're kind of thinking that it was actually Ukraine that accidentally had a couple of its cheapo missiles land in Poland. So there's not going to be a war. So that'll, call, that'll keep these oil markets from getting too excited. But going over here, look at this hump in gold and silver. 
something really got them excited that there was something big going to happen. Now, usually these metals will spike if there's bad news about the world economy or something major in the national economy. So there, was room, there were rumors that something hot was going to happen. Those rumors started this morning, earlier in the morning. And boy, gold and silver both popped up on buying by speculators who thought, we've got to get into gold because everything else is going to go to hell. But by the end of the day, like I said, the news, uh, the latest news coming out of uh, Eastern Europe was that no, those, uh, those missiles weren't Russia, and so we're not going to invoke Article 5 of uh, the NATO Treaty uh, of NATO. So anyway, bonds. <clears throat> Yields were down, which means prices were up. And that, so investors were buying bonds. And that was almost exclusively because investors were selling stocks, they were taking the proceeds, and they were going to something safer. They were going to the bonds. Just a classic little flight to quality is all that happened today. And it's sort of, it's kind of nice to understand these processes. We can't control them or anything like that. But having an understanding of why the markets move the way they do, they're all interrelated to each other. And they're interrelated to, local, to national news and to global news. And so once you begin to understand those forces, it's not a mystery anymore. But remember, you are unusual. 99% of the people in the country wouldn't understand this whole process. It's just the way the world works. Now, uh, Tokyo, it was climbing out of a pit. As the day was uh, going along, it broke uh, at uh, about lunchtime in Tokyo. It broke into positive territory. It didn't go anywhere from there, but it got up actually into positive territory for the day in Tokyo. And then once Tokyo was, everyone had gone to bed in Tokyo, London woke up. London started out in a good mood, and then it just got pissy. It just started piddling down. And then the sunset in London, and that bad mood came over here to the United States. And as the sun came up and the markets opened here, it's just like the whole world kind of is in this group thinking mode right now, at least, uh, except for Japan. I don't know what they're so happy about right now. I don't know. But anyway, that's, that's how all that's working. Now let me go back here for a minute. I'm going to take you on a, a bit of a journey just for a few minutes here to emphasize some points that I've done before. Might be a worth a question on, an ex on, a, on the final or something like that. But, well, why did I do that? Let me come over here. And I'm going to take Tesla, T-S-L-A. Now, as you can see, Tesla is just taking a crap right now. It just keeps falling. Now, a fundamental analyst would have seen this coming because we would have said, look, we've got a company that's run by a fellow who's not all that incredible as a business person. He bit off something massive that it was, he doesn't understand the business and he's firing the people who do understand the business and the company. He's, in a, he's just basically doing everything wrong. Well, what does that have to? What does Twitter have to do with Tesla? 
because whither goes the fortune of Twitter, now he has tied in some odd way the fortunes of the core company Tesla. So what does this mean for us? It means that you would probably, if you didn't think t Twitter was going to do well, and you can't bet on Twitter now, it's a private company, you could probably see Tesla beginning to lose its illusion of greatness. And that's what we see happening. If you look over a one-year period, do you see the declining tops and the declining bottoms? A technical analyst would say, oh God, get the hell out of that stock. There's no question about it that the technicals and the fundamentals are against Tesla. Can you win in that kind of an environment? Yes, you can, take sh uh, you can do short sales. A short sale is simply you will borrow the stock and then you will let it ride down. You will sell it. Uh, well, oh, well, you will borrow the stock and buy it, I should say. Let me dig up my, uh, some of my, I have so many markers now I can actually reach in and be pretty confident that I have one that's going to work. So what I would do is buy, uh, buy, borrow. You just borrow. And again, you don't borrow them from someone. You just tell your bar broker, I want to short one round lot TSLA. So the first thing is you borrow 100 shares TSLA. And then you immediately sell 100 shares of TSLA at market. So you would get into your account if you bought them at 187.34, net of a commission, and then you're going to have interest that's going to accumulate every day that you have borrowed and not given back. So you're just going to ride this, and immediately you're going to have to have in your mind a trigger point to buy them back. So what I will do is I will say GTC sell, uh, rather sell for God's sake, buy 100 shares TSLA at, let's say, 180 or better, okay? You're going to put in a good till canceled order that if it, it's going to fall. So you're going to buy it back, but only if it's at $180 a share or lower. So let's say that after four days, it hits your trigger and the buy happens. The order fills. So out of your account goes $1,000, $18,000, okay? 
and then you just give them back. Return 100 t shares of TLSA you borrowed. So your gross on it is $734. Now, we're going to ignore a commission, maybe $10, whatever, but we are going to have four days. Let's say the interest rate that you pay is 20% per year. So you're going to do 4 over 365 times 20% times 1000 $18,734. So that's what you're going to pay in interest. It's for 365 days. Calculator. 4 divided by 365 times 20% times $18,734.41.06. Let's round it to $41. Less $41 interest you did for four days. And so your net on this is $693. Net profit. That's how a short works. Like I said, the only part I didn't put in there was a commission. And honestly, it's going to vary. If you do this and you're a volume player, your commission's going to be pretty small. If you're just a one-trick pony every once in a while, then it'll be a little more. But that interest rate is pretty steep, right? Notice what's going on here. Notice something. The longer you hold, the longer it takes to hit your trigger, the more interest you are accumulating that's go you're going to have to pay. That's why these have a shelf life on them. The longer you hold it, the less you're going to make. Worse yet, it might never get to your trigger. And then you have to cover your short. What if somehow this stock starts going up in price? You are screwed because you're going to have to buy it back at a higher price than you sold it at. So you're going to lose money, and then you're going to pay interest on that money that you borrowed, that, the value of what you borrowed. So that's a problem right there. The days, what you look at is days to cover. How long are these shorts actually staying out there, floating around? You look at the general overall. As the days to cover gets larger and larger, the more likely it is you're going to lose your ass on this because there are others who've already gone out there and they're waiting and nothing is happening. Even worse is what happens when panic time ha comes. And if, suppose that Tesla starts rising to 188, 190, 191. All of a sudden, all those shorts are going to start running out. They're going to run, the shorts are getting run out. What happens then is all of those shorts start buying to cover their position and cut their losses. As those, all, every son of a bitch starts buying, that's going to push the price up even more. And you're going to be in even worse shape. That panic, that's called running the shorts out. And it can cause the price to spike 
not because of really any fundamentals about the company, but simply because all those shorts are trying to cover because they're losing their asses. And so it was, might have gone to 188, 189, and all of a sudden all these shorts say, oh my God, and they all start buying Tesla to cover their short positions, and then they're dead right there. They lose their shirts. This was what happened a couple of years ago with GameStop. All the big dog players have these whipping boys. They just love to short them and then let the stock price fall and then they collect their money. It's like, a, it's like an every week cycle. They just keep doing it over and over and the price just keeps dropping. They short, they make money. They short, they make money. And then those idiots on Wall Street bets on uh, Reddit suddenly started talking about GameStop and they all started buying it. There were a couple of big houses in Walls, on Wall Street. They were just expecting to make their weekly short profit off GameStop and the price started going through the roof. They didn't believe it at first. They just said, ah, this has gotta be something weird. It's just a bunch of internet idiots. Well, when GameStop got high enough in price, those houses lost, they, they suddenly panicked and they had huge short positions. And so they had to start buying to cover their shorts, which caused the stock price to go up even more. And that was just a disaster for the rich boys on Wall Street. And of course, that made the Redditors who had bet on GameStop even richer because the shorts were covering, driving the price up through the roof. And there you go. So you gotta be careful about that. You got to, uh, but short positions, that's the other side of the market. You can make money when a stock price goes up. That's what most people think happens all the time. You can also make money when a uh, stock price goes down. That's what they're doing in a short position. That's what short sales are. So uh, selling isn't the opposite of buying. Short selling is the opposite of buying. Uh, so you keep that in mind if you feel lucky. Now, most brokerage houses will require that you have a margin account. In other words, you have extra money in your account just in case this thing goes, uh, any short position you take goes sour on you. Yeah, uh, they'll say, okay, you want to take a position like, in this case, $18,735. Eh, we're going to require that you still have maybe 10 grand in your account after this after you've done this. So just to make sure uh, that you've got enough money in case this uh, Tesla goes the wrong way on you. But keep in mind that this is out there. It's one of the things that you can do as, a, uh, as an investor. Have I done shorts? Yeah, I, usually it's not a good idea unless you really know something about the company. And in the case of Tesla, I don't know. I'm, let me see something here, and I'm gonna, I don't bookmark, I, well, they, they delete my bookmarks, so I'm gonna, it's called short interest tracker. I'll look at a tracker and just show you some information. Uh, short interest data. And let's see if they're gonna let me do this. Seriously, do they have to make the, it look that complicated? That's, that's just weird ass. Uh, 
where's the one that I usually use? Market Watch. Is that short? Oh, there we go. Really? There we go. Now, here's another thing, too. See this short interest outstanding? This tells you how much of the company's total stock out in the market is in a short position. Now, ideally, a company wouldn't want something more than a couple of percent. If you see these numbers like you're seeing here, uh, why is this acting so stupid right now? Um, I want this to show some more. Oh, there we go. I see. Okay. Short float. Short as a percent of float. <laughs> I mean, these are grim when that much of the company's total stock outstanding is sitting in a short position. That's scary. Now, uh, this is how many shares. This is the percent of the total outstanding. So in the case of this, what is TD, TCDA? Oh, look at this one. This one you recognize. Bed, beast and be bed Bath & Beyond. Bed, Beast & Beyond. Bed, <laughs> bed Bath & Beyond has a, a short uh, float. Uh, well, it is sometimes. I mean, well, although they do have fine fabric, 250-count bed sheets that are really quality. No, anyway, 40% uh, of the company's total stock in the market is in a short position right now. <coughs> now, some would say that is good because those shorts are sitting there waiting for the stock to drop. And if the stock doesn't drop, you're going to have 76.5 million shares suddenly being bought to cover short positions. That would drive Bed Bath & Beyond through the roof. So maybe this isn't such a bad sign for the short-term price of Bed Bath & Beyond. It might just jump because the shorts start panicking. I'm trying to find a number here. Oh, I see. I have to go clear down to here to get. I'm looking for days, out, days uh, outstanding. In other words, how long have these shorts on average been sitting there? And I'm not seeing. Oh, isn't that interesting? Oh, this is the last reporting date. They're not showing one thing that is important to see. How long have the shorts, on average, been holding their position? In that example, I, had four, I, I put it at four days. Now, I could call back and say, uh, it, it's good till canceled, but I probably wouldn't be able to do that. I would say that if you get beyond about six to eight days, you probably have the short positions getting a little sweaty if they've been holding on that long. So in a case like this, like I said, it would be nice if I, they had the days outstand, the days, huh? That's the reporting date. So they haven't updated this. Oh, this is the, yeah, the, ooh. 
So these are all short, Bed Bath & Beyond, that is the short position as of October the 31st. So that's not telling us a lot, but it's telling us that they've been holding. So what I would do is I would say Bed Bath & Beyond, BBBY. Wow. That's down, but so is the market. Bad, bad beta, bad beta. But at the same time, let me see something here. Declining tops, declining bottoms. Look right here. If I were to draw a line roughly through those bottoms, I would say that out here somewhere there's a trigger, maybe at about $3 a share. If Bed Bath & Beyond doesn't get to $3 a share and it runs at it three times, that's a buy signal. The short positions are probably betting at about $3. So what I would say is that you would, you would bet that low simply because it's such a cheap stock. It's worth a shot, it's worth a shot. I would buy an option on Bed Bath & Beyond, simply something like this. I would say, okay, I'm going to take a November 8th, no, I don't want to get that close. I want to go out here, let's say the December 2nd. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, I will buy a contract of call options. Now I'd pay 72 cents per share, so that would be $72. Now, if on that date, Bed Bath & Beyond is, let's say, $3.40, I keep $40 per share for 100 shares, so that would be $4,000 on that contract. That's how call options work you make the difference between what is called the strike price and the price of the stock on that date. If it's below that price, you get nothing. You just lost your investment of $72. But if it finishes above $3 a share, you get the difference between that strike price of $3 a share and the higher price that Bed Bath & Beyond is on that day. So in that case, if I thought that Bed Bath & Beyond was going to be at $3.40 on December the 2nd, or better, or something above $3. And I could get at least $72 out of the difference. I would take this position. It's worth a shot. I mean, it's risky as hell with something like Bed Bath & Beyond. But with all that volatility being re reflected in the beta, it could very well be a, a play, a win. Uh, God knows, that's a risky play, but that's the kind of thing that I do. I am an options trader, uh, and that's how, you, how options work. You see how you're actually paying only $72, and you can lose that $72 if Bed Bath & Beyond is below $3 on the expiration date. But if it's above that, well, spank me Jesus, I'm going to make some money. And that's how you do it. You just play this, 
as often and you lose and you win, the whole game is to win more than you lose over a long period of time. And sometimes to just piss yourself when you swear it was going to do what you, it didn't do. Okay, anyway, there are a couple of lessons for you about investing. How do you do investing? Well, you can buy stocks, make a nice, well-diversified portfolio, which is what you should do with most of your money. But you can also do side bets, short sales. You can also do options. And there's an opposite of a call option is a put option. You're betting that the stock will go down. So there you go. Enough of that. God, that market pisses me off right now. Let me show you something. UDAO. It's lost 10 cents a day. I've got a call option on UDAO at 60. And it's out there until December the uh, 2nd. And so if UDAO finishes above 60 a share, I collect the difference. If UDAO is below $60 a share, I just lost my investment, uh, how much I paid for the call option. So I'm really, really hoping that damn thing goes above $60 a share here before December, this, December the 2nd it is. God, anyway, enough of that. Now on to more exciting things. The last part of free cash flow. The, the, the only thing to tell you is that when we do that free cash flow analysis operating income, minus op income times tax. This is what we call no pat. And then we add back depreciation and amortization expense, amort expense. And then we subtract capital expenditures. And we subtract the change in net operating working capital. One thing that we do is what's called sensitivity analysis. Now, it sounds fancy, but there are three different things that could happen, ways we could look at it. There is risk, there are three different kinds of risk we could think about. There is a standalone risk. Remember how I said that we look at this project in a sandbox away from the company itself? Well, that risk is going to be reflected in the company itself, in the expenses that drive the operating income. In other words, revenue minus cost of goods sold minus SG&A minus uh, depreciation expense. You can ask yourself, what happens if I, my expenses go up more than I, they should? My expenses right now, let's say SG&A is 15% of, of the revenues. What happens if that expands or if it goes down, goes from 15% to 20% or 15% down to 12%? You vary those numbers and get a new free cash flow result. You up it and you down it. 
based upon changes in the expense structure that is in operating income. Now there's another one, company risk. What happens if our pretending about the sandbox is taken away and we look at this project in the light of the larger company itself? And that would be the operating income, the revenues and all that kind of moving around on you. Raise them, see what happens to free cash flow. Lower them, see what happens to free cash flow. And then there's this one, the market risk. The best way to capture market risk would be to look at WAC. You do what's called scenario analysis. Where you increase and decrease the WAC. Suppose interest rates in the economy go up. Okay, let's add 2% to the weighted average cost of capital. What happens if interest rates in the economy go down? You subtract two, three, whatever percent. And you look at what happens to the free cash flow as a result of changing the WAC. Look at the net present value of the project's projected cash, free cash flows. These are just some of the ways that we do this inside of companies. When we're analyzing projects, when we're analyzing the entire company, we ask ourselves, what, what if expenses go up? What if our wholesale costs go up? What if they go down? What happens, well, what happens if taxes go up? What does that do to things, to, to this mess? And then, you know, the one thing that you've got to be careful about, playing around with net operating working capital is a dangerous game. We usually leave that alone in any kind of what-if analysis. Capital expenditures, eh, you want to be careful about playing around too much with those two because the long-term boys are the ones who are deciding those those factors, those features. But one way or the other, there are ways that we can do this so that we can ask ourselves, let's not give a single number. Let's give a number that is high in the average and low, and then that gives us a better way to inform ourselves about the potential for a project to work out. Anyway, you've got a quiz, it's opened up.